you spend your whole life looking up to other people. All, everybody has somebody that they've looked up to and was inspired by or felt like, gosh, if that person could do it, I can do it. Or I want to model my decision making after this person because they seem to have been successful. And then one day you become the person that other people are looking up to. And I just, you know, I realized, wow, like I am now that person. And it wasn't that Cheryl didn't believe in what we were doing or why we were doing it or that she could make it happen. Obviously, if she wanted to make it happen, she could make it happen. But what she was trying to say is now you're the person and you've got to become the one that people look up to and you go out and make these things happen for other people behind you. And that was a transitional moment, I think, for me as a leader, and especially in thinking about my responsibility, not just to doing a good job and getting promoted and getting more titles and more pay, but also what was I going to do to give back and help other people around me. with the most Kenny Vaughn and we are back with the dynamic trio. What's up everybody? It is Sophia. I also play for Team Breakline and thank you guys for joining us for another episode in the arena. We are here once again with our amazing CEO Bethany. Thank you Kenny and Soap for having me back. Uh, Hi everybody this is Bethany. I play for Team Breakline. I am so happy to be here. And just for a little bit of context, that Cheryl that today's guest, Stacy Brown Philpot, was referencing was one of her mentors, Cheryl Sandberg. So that's the level that we are entering this conversation at. Sophia, is it okay if I just brag on Stacy for a minute? Is that okay? Do it. That is all I want you to do. <laughs> brag on Stacy. Just gas her all the way up. She deserves so it. So when we say that Stacey Brown Philpot is one of the most influential African-American women in the tech industry. I actually want to scratch that and say she's one of the most influential people in the tech industry, period. Right? Mm, she is period. the former CEO of TaskRabbit, helped grow the company towards its acquisition from IKEA, which happened recently. She's on the board of HP. She's on the board of Nordstrom. She's on the board of Noom. She's on the board of a company called StockX. And oh, by the way, She's Mm. also the founding member of the SoftBank Opportunity Fund, which is a $100 million venture fund dedicated to supporting a community of outstanding Black, Latinx, and Native American founders. Mm. Like, get it, Stacey. Do it. My goodness. Um... Sophia, what did you what did you take away from this conversation? Yes, so I absolutely adore Stacy as a human being. I love her, what she stands for, what she cares about. She has one point in this conversation y'all will hear. She she says, no matter your circumstances, there is a way to make community and take care of your own. And your own is not just what's between your four walls. And I love this. I feel like it manifests in so many different ways in her life. It's her having people over for dinner all the time to make sure they're connecting as part of the community. It's also through when she was the CEO of TaskRabbit, which really allows consumers to find 
freelance labor that's according to local demand. She was creating opportunities for folks to rise to their top earning potential. It's everyone up-leveling together, and that is just at her core what she's trying to accomplish in this world, and I think it's gonna resonate with so many people. Thank you so much for that. And Bethany, I would love to hear your thoughts here. We know that Stacy is an absolute rock star. Can you give us a little bit more insight into your takeaways from this conversation, your reflections on Stacy as a person? Would love to hear your thoughts for our listeners here. Kenny, you bet. And I just loved interviewing Stacy, and I was so grateful that she joined us for the Breakline Arena podcast. She is very thoughtful about prioritizing her time and often says no to these types of requests. So we were really lucky to have her join our community for that event. And I thought that the most powerful moment in a very powerful conversation was when she was recounting a, a conversation with her mentor, Cheryl Sandberg. And Cheryl said to her, you are the person you've been waiting for. And I just thought it was a really wonderful reminder of what's possible when we step into our full potential and when we have confidence in our ability to create change. And that was so much of the narrative that Stacy was kind enough to share with us. Thank you for sharing that with us as well. You bet. I'm not sure about you all, uh, but I think it may be time to give these listeners what they came here for. What do y'all think? Let's head on over. I say heck to the yes. We will see you guys in the Breakline Arena. See you there. Stacy, such a treat to welcome you here. Welcome to all of our Breakline alums as well. Love being in this space with all of you. It's so much fun to see so many familiar faces. And I want you all to know that it took me months to navigate my way to Stacey Brown Philpot. I have been looking forward to this conversation for so long. I've looked up to her for years, first came um, across her path um, through Stanford. And so Stacey, it's a really special time for us to be able to welcome you here to the Breakline community. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Stacey, I actually want to talk about first your tenure as CEO of TaskRabbit. You were brought in first as COO by the founder, Leah Busk, and then you succeeded her in that CEO role, and you ended up leading the company through a period of tremendous growth, and also through the acquisition by IKEA and also through sort of the, the early navigation of a global pandemic. So just like a, an incredibly influential and momentous time in the company's history. Can you talk to us about that period when you look back on that experience, what are you most proud of? I, you know, it's, it was such a journey. When I joined TaskRabbit, it was 40 people in the company. And when I left, it was 300 and we just, you know, expanded from eight cities in the U.S. to over to 70 markets across six countries. And, you know, it, it, on the metrics, you can be proud of those metrics, but what I'm truly proud of is just the people and the team that I got to build and work with. I mean, ultimately, these were some of the most remarkable people that I've ever met, and they were also some of the most engaging people and mission-minded people that I'd ever worked with. So that is, that's really what I'm proud of. We had a lot of fun. <laughs> and so fun was 
high on the equation. I hope I'm proud of the fun that we had, which was, <laughs> which was awesome. And then I'm also proud of like the amount of jobs that we created. We had 76,000 taskers in our community when I left the company and the average hourly rate on TaskRabbit was $35 an hour. And so people were able to sign up to our platform and earn a meaningful income. And I think growing up, and I'm sure we'll get to this in Detroit, was one of those times where I wanted to see this opportunity happen and it didn't. And I really wish that, you know, this was something that, you know, could happen for my city. And so when we launched in Detroit, for example, that was another sort of very proud moment too. Thank you, Stacy. And I want to, I'm going to ask a few more questions about TaskRabbit. And then I do want to get to, to your childhood and growing up in Detroit. When I was preparing for this conversation, I listened to a couple of podcasts. And in one of them, you talked about how the most important thing that you and your team at TaskRabbit got right as you approached the sort of strategy that you had for navigating through the pandemic was that you were aligned in your values and you were recommitted to those values. Will you talk to us a little bit about why, why that stood out to you as the number one thing that enabled you to succeed during a pretty fraught period? You know, I think the values were what anchored the company. And when I joined TaskRabbit, one of our core values was to be neighborly. And it was sort of about community. I mean, the company was founded when Leah basically needed to feed her dog and she wanted somebody in the community to go Mm -hmm. and make that happen for her. Mm -hmm. So it was tremendously sort of core to who we were and, and how we operated as a company. And so when we got acquired by Ikea, there was this whole question of values and I decided to redo the values. And it's not because we didn't like the values as they were. It was because we were so, you know, worried. I think I'll be honest, worried about like being absorbed into this very big company that had its own values that were great, but they just weren't ours. And so we redid the values and we came up with four core values. And one of the values that we kept was around being neighborly, but it was, we call it, we, we changed a little bit to be a better neighbor. And so it was, you know, it really was what anchored us and be a better neighbor. wasn't just about, you know, how we interacted outside of TaskRabbit. It was also like, wash your mug, your coffee mug when you're done and don't leave that thing in the sink with that ring around it too. <laughs> that was also be a better neighbor <laughs> or like clean the plate in the sink. If like you see six plates, don't just add the seventh plate, like do your part. Um, and so, you know, and that was really what anchored a lot of what we did. And, you know, the values really came to life when we were trying to decide what to do during the pandemic and how do we operate the market marketplace in a world where life or death was, was on the table. And we went back to the values of being neighborly, of creating community and keeping the community safe and figuring out how to lead from the front. And so um, values is what guided us, especially during those difficult and challenging times, for sure. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Stacey. 
And one of the things that, that you've talked about in your relationship with Leah, you actually met her um, originally because TaskRabbit was in the same building as Google Ventures, where you were an entrepreneur in residence. And, mm-hmm. um, and so you, you had sort of almost a neighborly affiliation with Leah in that respect before joining the company. But you also talk about community, even from your very earliest memories as a child and growing up in Detroit. And you talked about your neighborhood and your first job, having a paper route and really feeling that your community was behind you and that your neighbors were proud of you and that they wanted you to succeed. Will you talk a little bit about that influence in your life and your career, kind of coming from this neighborhood in Detroit with people who were really behind you, really alongside you in that journey and and wanting to see you thrive? You know, it was, um, everybody asked, like, what was it like growing up on the west side of Detroit? Like, was that hard? Was it a struggle? And maybe it was, but it was, it was where I grew up. Like it was where I was from. It was home. And so we found a way to take care of each other, look out for each other, create a community that cared about each other. And that's what, that's what we focused on. And so when we would go out and do things, I remember we would do block parties and like, you know, I don't know if anybody knows what a block party is, but basically you, somehow you, sometimes you convince like the neighborhood to block off the street with those big things. And sometimes it doesn't actually work, but you have one and like everyone would bring some food. And like, there's one guy, Mr. Showers, who like used to like um, play Motown music in his backyard. And so I know all the words to many Motown songs that like were created like way before I was born. But anyway, I know all the words anyway. And so you just looked out for each other. And I think that that's something that I carried into my life. It's like, no matter where you are in your circumstances, like there's a way to create community and take care of your own. And your own isn't just about like what's in the four walls. It's like everybody who's around you. And so we had neighbors who like made sure we got to and from the bus stop. And we had people who you know, would provide food for us and we provide food for them if somebody was sick and in the hospital. And we've lost a lot of that because families have dispersed so much. And, you know, I try now to foster that in my own way. We do Sunday dinners at our house and pre-COVID, we had like at least two different families here, just like fellowshipping with each other. Now we just have one, now that we've opened things up, like it's just one because everybody's scared of everything. But, but we try to figure out how to like make this village sustain. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, as I thought about how you led TaskRabbit, for example, one of the decisions that you and your team at TaskRabbit made was that the minimum wage for taskers would be the top minimum wage in the country. And so yeah. that, that would always be the floor at, of their earning potential. And it would only go up from there. And, you know, and to hear that the average was $35 an hour is really fabulous. I was wondering if those decisions were influenced by the community that you came from and the way that you all looked out for each other and the whole idea that we can thrive together. I really, you know, that decision wasn't, 
a hard decision to make. And, you know, politics is entering into every single conversation we have every single day now. And it's just unfortunate because not everything has to be political. But that decision was like, what's the right thing to do? Like, how, like, how, how do we be a better neighbor? Like, what's the, what would you want? If that was you, what would you want? And you would want to be well-paid. And we know that there are plenty of well-known restaurants that underpay people and they don't think about like, what's, what's just the right thing to do. And so it is, it goes back to where I'm from and it goes back to the values on which I was raised. Then it goes back to my faith too, which is like, let's just do the right thing. And so it was like, well, it's going to be how much, how expensive is that going to be? How, you know, how are we going to be able to afford it? And when you do the math, what happens is, is you end up with a pastor community that's very loyal, that feels that like the company cares about them. So they're committed. They allocate more time to, to doing work through the platform. And they do a great job. So the quality goes up and the clients who use the service have a great experience. So they tell people and those people become very loyal. And so it really fed the flywheel. So if we break down the economics, I went to Wharton so I can talk about the economics. If you break down the economics, like it drove the business. If you treat people right, like that will drive the business. Yes. Thank you, Stacey. And one of the, the stories that, that you've told is around vulnerability and being brave enough to be vulnerable with your team, with your community, and in doing so, being able to build closer relationships. And one of the stories that you told was in the wake of George Floyd's murder, you got up and spoke to the entire company about your experience as a Black woman in the United States. Will you talk a little bit about why you made that decision and then the aftermath, what it meant in terms of your connection with the company and the conversations that happened afterwards? Yeah, I I actually did it twice. I did it when Philando Castile was murdered. And that was the first time that I did it. And I, I, I didn't know what else to say. And and that's the only thing that I could talk about. We had our company meeting. It was incredibly heartbreaking to know what happened to him. And my team was reaching out. My management team was like, hey, we can cancel the meeting. We know you must be hurting. There's other people on the team that have reached out that they don't want to come to work tomorrow. And, and I was like, oh, we can't cancel the meeting. But we can't go out and celebrate like, the new hires, like we just can't do that either because that's weird. And so I didn't have anything else to say. I just needed to get up there and just share my experience. And it was really important for me to do that because I don't know that people knew how much I was hurting and it, and, and that they knew that this isn't the first time this has happened to somebody in my community and it wasn't going to be the last. And sure enough, four years later, George Floyd was murdered. So it, you know, it wasn't the last. And, and that, was, that was one of the most critical times for me because I had just become the CEO. I was three months into the job and I was trying to put on all my best self of like, I'm the CEO, I can run this company. 
and now I got to get up and like have this conversation. And so it opened up the floodgates of, wow, like she's human. Cause I think people didn't think I was maybe. And it's, you know, when you see the senior person, you're not sure like how they get everything done. So she's human. And it also allowed people to bring their stories to the table. And so you deepen the connection with every individual because they then have a story to tell about something that happened to them that may not have come up had I not shared that story. And then those deep connections foster relationships so we can work better together, we can better relate, we can understand each other, we can better collaborate on the the work side uh, of work. And I'll just finish a little bit with, with George Floyd. So when that happened, it was it was very natural in our company to talk about stuff like this. Like we weren't like, oh my God, now what do we do? Let's scramble. It was not a should we, it was more a how to execute it. And so people really rallied to try to have empathy, try to have understanding. We obviously put a bunch of programs in place but they really wanted to know like, what were we gonna do now? And I was sort of called, let's talk to this reporter, let's talk to that reporter. What do you think? How should we respond? And I was like, I don't really wanna talk to any reporters right now. Like how, what, what do you want me to say? You saw the same thing that I saw. So what else can I say that is helpful right now, except that these people need to be arrested for what they did? and charged. And so so what we ended up doing internally was we said, let's just actually have a conversation in the company. We didn't do any like the task rabbit black logo. We didn't decide what organizations we were going to give to first and all of that. That came much later. What we decided to do was I went to everybody and I said, hey, we still have a problem as a society. And systemic racism exists, and it still exists in this company. And I know we're doing great, but we're not great as we as great as we could be. So let's have a conversation about that. And so we we ended up having these small group conversations that was pre precluded by a bigger company meeting, and that really changed the course of how then the team said, okay, now here's what we want to do around Black Lives Matter. Here's how we want to contribute. Here's how I want to give here are the other types of sessions that I want to have. And they took real ownership, I think, of trying to make TaskRabbit a much better place to work. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really admire about the steps that you took and the choices that you made was that you role modeled the, the importance and the benefit of communicating. You know, you've talked about how people sort of through anxiety or fear or discomfort or whatever, avoid the hard conversations and essentially leave an elephant in the room where there's, right. you know, a space that goes unfilled. And so the role modeling, I think, was so powerful that the only way through it is to address it. Yeah, it's so true. Stacy, one of the things that the, the stories that you've told is that you never set out to be a CEO. You, you set out to achieve a mission. You set out to enable TaskRabbit to be the best possible version of itself and to enable everyday people to, um, to pursue work that was meaningful and that, that added to their lives and their livelihoods. 
And then you stepped into the role at a really natural juncture um, and Leah moved into an executive chairman position. Will you talk a little bit about that mentality, you know, the, where you've said it's, it's never been about the title. It's always about the opportunity for impact. It was, it was a natural progression. And I remember Leah and I were flying back from DC and she told me that it was sort of time for her to make the transition. And I sort of laughed it off. And I was like, ah, you know, you know, I, it's her baby. So why would she want to leave her baby? <laughs> um, and she's like, look, I feel like I've brought the company from, from the beginning to here. And I want someone else to take it to the next level. And I want that person to be you if you want it. And then so I had to go and decide, do I really want it? And what I wanted was not just the title. As you said, I felt like there was more that I could do as CEO to bring the vision of making everyday life easier for everyday people to the world. And we only scratched the surface of what was possible. And I really wanted to be the person that tried to take it to the next step. And it was part of the reason why I left too, actually, because I was I talk it to here, right? And then it was time to pass the baton on to someone else. But it was never about the title. It was more about what we could create and what I could help create with a great team of people working alongside me. Mm -hmm. One of the sort of pivotal moments in your life was a conversation that you had with Cheryl Sandberg and you worked closely with Cheryl while you were at Google. You were at Google for about nine years, very early in the company's history. And you came to, to Cheryl with an idea for forming a group for Black Googlers and asked for her sort of buy-in and participation in creating this group. And she said, Stacy, you're the person you've been waiting for to make it happen. And it was, a, it was a light bulb moment for you. Will you talk a little bit about that conversation and what happened next? You know, it was, it was like, it was more than a light bulb because it was really this time when I realized that I was it. And you spend your whole life looking up to other people. Um, all, everybody has somebody they've looked up to and was inspired by or felt like, gosh, if that person could do it, I can do it. Or I want to model my decision-making after this person because they seem to have been successful. And then one day you become the person that other people are looking up to. And I didn't have children at the time. So I guess when you have kids, those little people look up to you too for a, for a, for a brief period of time. And then, I don't know, I have a 10-year-old. I'm not sure she's still that. I don't know for sure. I don't know. But uh, for a brief, they do. So I didn't realize that. And I just, you know, I realized, wow, like I am now that person. And it wasn't that Cheryl didn't believe in what we were doing or why we were doing it or that she could make it happen. Obviously, if she wanted to make it happen, she could make it happen. But what she was trying to say is now you're the person. And you've got to become the one that people look up to and you go out and make these things happen for other people behind you. And that was a transitional moment, I think, for me as a leader um, and especially in thinking about my responsibility, not just to doing a good job and getting promoted and getting more titles and more pay, but also 
what was I going to do to give back and help other people around me? Mm-hmm. And you've talked about how for most of your career, you've been the first, the only one of the few and you've said that it's both your responsibility to be a role model and also your opportunity. Like you both needed to take it on and you wanted to take it on. Will you talk a little bit about, about the, the experience of being a role model for other people? It's, it's okay. It's just okay. I was, uh, I was on the phone today with somebody and he was asking me, I, I'd taken a walk with a friend who wrote a book and I was like the inspiration for the book. I gave her some feedback one day and it was like, that's like game changing. She wrote a book about it. And she asked me if she could reference me and say like, Stacy is the person who inspired me to write this book. And I've been thinking about it and thinking about it. She asked me before we went for this walk today. And I was like, no, because I don't really want people to like know me like I don't I don't want to be the center of this book I want the stories to sort of live beyond me and so when you're a role model it's not I don't want people to look at me and say you specifically can do this I want people to see that they can do it too and that whatever they see in me is is in them it's, it's somewhere in you. We're all kind of a reflection of each other. And so if something about me inspires you, it's because you have it too. You might not think you have it, but you do. So if I'm a role model in that way, that's great. But just to look up to me, I, that's not, my kids will tell me all day long, like mommy's boring. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that. That's, that's amazing. And <clears throat> You So you've been a leader within the tech sector for many years now, and in some ways, you are a contrarian. So Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, interviewed you for a Masters of Scale podcast. And in that podcast, you said you were talking about what he was calling the human cloud. And you said, we talk a lot about technology teaching us how to be smarter. I still believe that there are human beings who just teach technology how to be smarter. Will you talk to us a little bit about this sort of human-centered perspective on tech? Yeah, I um, like the whole software is eating the world and all these things that don't actually eat anything eating the world is great for like Twitter and, you know, other ways to sort of communicate a message. But in the end, like we, we as human beings are the creators. And we are creating technology, we are creating companies, we are creating societies, like we are the creators. The machines are programmed by people like us, and maybe some machines can teach other machines what to do, but behind it is a creator. And so I still believe in the power of creation. I remember people would ask me, you know, I, you know, when, when are task rabbits going to, taskers going to go away? And then, you know, you'll basically have a bunch of robots assembling furniture. And I can tell you right now, Ikea is thinking about this. Like there's some stuff, you can snap it together. Like they've even got like demos you can probably find on their website, but there's insights that just don't, won't ever get automated away. We had a, we were pitching and selling the company. 
we brought some pastors in to kind of talk so that they could meet the community that they were basically buying when we were in this M&A process. And one of the taskers said something at the very end of the meeting, and these were expert, you know, furniture assembly people who've, been, who've done like hundreds of tasks on the platform. And he said, you know, can I offer you some advice? And he said, yeah, he said, you know, when I open the box, the screws are always like up here in the top left corner. And the problem with that is that after I have to take them out and I have to take everything out and assemble it, and sometimes they like fall down. So if you actually move the screws, it would be much easier for me to like pull everything out and set everything up to assemble. And like that insight only comes from like a human being to me, which is like just one tiny nudge can like fundamentally change, not just like his experience assembling stuff, but he's gonna get it done faster, which means like he's probably gonna make more money. The company's gonna be more profitable. The person's gonna have a better experience, like all sorts of things really flow from like a human insight. I'm gonna turn it over to our audience in just a second, but have one more question for you now. You wrote on your LinkedIn profile, due to the events of 2020, nothing is going according to plan. And we're having to reimagine so much of our world, especially the way we work. As a leader, I'm inspired by the opportunity for us to grow and to rethink how to be more inclusive, productive, and impactful. And this has been a really difficult 18 months for all of us, and it's been harder for some than for others. As a mission-minded person, how do you dig in when the mission gets really tough? And how do you stay centered and grounded and energized when it's hard? Yeah, it is. It's, it's actually incredibly easy <laughs> when it's hard if, if you're grounded in values. And we talked earlier about having values and putting those values at the center of decision-making. I think one of the things that happened for me this past year was just really thinking about purpose and being purposeful and intentional even more than I already was about everything. And, you know, I think that if I take nothing away from the events that continue to unfold, I can't even say that happened in 2020, because here we are in August of 2021, and here we are. So the events that continue to unfold, just really being purposeful. So starting the opportunity fund to focus on investing in Black, Latinx, and Native American founders, like that was intentional because we want to change the face of wealth creation in society. I recently joined the board of a company called Noom, which is really focused on creating better consumer experiences for healthcare by thinking of helping us think about the psychology of why we eat what we eat and not just what we eat so that we can prevent other comorbidities that stem from being overweight. I joined the board of StockX, which is this really cool company. If you haven't heard of it, you should check it out. But I call it the stuff of these of pop culture. But this company was founded in Detroit, which is where I'm from. I've been following for years and they are doing an amazing job of figuring out how to like let you trade your assets for value and what they're worth and like basically a stock exchange. And so really being intentional is one, my one big takeaway, which means I say no to a lot of things, a lot of investment, you know, this <laughs> a lot of things, but the, some of the things you say yes to, that means you can really lean in and, and, and make an impact. Um, 
Stacy has said many times that sort of ruthlessly prioritizing her time is 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 something that that she cares a lot about. And so Stacy, it made me even more grateful that you were willing to carve out time for Breakline in our community. Anthony has a question for you. And he said, can you share more about what you take into account when you decide to step away from a leadership role at a time when the company is on the mountaintop? And he said, you did this at Google, you did it at TaskRabbit. What is it that you're thinking about when you make those transitions? Yeah, I, I thought a lot about legacy. And, you know, in particular, what was I leaving behind? Because I think you got to break up before you can go to. I never, when people ask me for career advice, I never say run away from a job. You run to it, which means you got to break up with whatever you're doing right now. And for Google, you know, the breakup was, okay, like I've grown an amazing career here. I have worked with people all over the world. I've led teams of over a thousand people. Like I've done all these things. We've built these amazing products that people use every day. And I just felt like, okay, I felt this sense of accomplishment, but that whatever happens after me will be built upon in a good way. Maybe not the way that I would do it, but in a good way. I felt the same way at TaskRabbit, where I, I wanted to leave a legacy. This company's going to live on forever. We got through the pandemic. We, it was very clear in 2008 that the company was essential because she founded the company during a recession. And then it was even more clear last year in 2020 that like people need this kind of business. And so all I wanted to do was set the company up for the next 50 years of existence, even if I'm not part of it. And so the, the last thing I'll say on that is that there's a sense of contentment that I get as a leader where I'm like, ah, I need to stir the pot. I need to get uncomfortable again because then I feel like I'm stretching and I'm growing and I'm still at that place where like, I want to stretch, I want to grow. So when I start to feel content, then that means it's sort of time for me to move on. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And <clears throat> Opportunity Fund is, it's such an amazing um, fund that, that you have, have created. It's $100 million that Stacey and team are investing in Black, Latinx, and Native American founders within SoftBank. So tremendous resources that, that they can tap into as they grow. And when you talked about this in the past, you said how important it is for founders to speak with investors who remind them of themselves. And then you also if you decide not to invest, you give them real feedback on why. If you decide to invest, you're with them as a partner all the way along. And Carolyn has a question. She says, can you talk about a time you made an investment that didn't pan out, why you decided to invest and why it wasn't successful? Yeah, most of the investments that we make won't pan out in the way that we want. And that's just the case inventor, right? It's, it's, you're really, especially at the stage that we invest, which is seed and series A. Most of those things will not pan out the way that we want. You want a really, really big one to return the funds. So you can go out and raise some more money and people say, okay, this is worth it. You want a few to sort of do well and then the rest will not make it at all. 
I will say that, you know, we, we actually have, it's only been a year, so we've only been around for a year, and we have not wound down any of our investments yet. And I say yet because I know what's going to happen, but I will say that when I see the companies that are now breaking out from, we gave them their initial round of funding, and now they're going out and raising an, a second round of funding, and some of them are getting, you know, many term sheets, and some of them are getting none or one. The difference between those two, from what I can see, if I look at the patterns across, is the team. So how good is the team? Good meaning, can they execute? Do they have the right skills? Are they hungry? You know, what, what, how well do they work together? How big is the market? that they're in. Sometimes you have a good idea, but the market's just not big enough. So nobody's gonna believe you're gonna get 80% of that market in five years. It's just like, it's very difficult, even as good as your idea uh, may be. And so they maybe they thought the market was bigger than it was. And now they're learning, wait a minute, you know, this market isn't what we thought it was gonna be. And the third is just execution. They're just making it happen. And any, many, any of you who are operators here, like, I used to wonder what was operations. When I was in finance, I started my career in financial services, and I used to always, like, you know, we would do deals, and we would have transactions. I was an accountant. We would, like, you know, audit a balance sheet. Very clear what to do. When I moved into operations, I was like, what? I remember sitting down with David Fisher, who used to, I used to work for him, and then he went to Facebook. But I said, David, what exactly is operations? Like, define it for me. And he's like, you know, operations is, like, you know, every day you walk in and there's a decision to be made. And then like that decision is going to trigger another decision and there's going to be another decision to be made. And then it's all about trade-offs. And that was it. And I sat there and I had no idea what he meant because I was getting my first operational job. And once I got in the job, I said, he's right. All I'm doing is making decisions and like evaluating trade-offs. That's it. And so the teams are doing well, are executing well on that they are evaluating trade-offs making decisions and evaluating trade-offs as they go through and doing it in a very effective way mm -hmm. thank you stacy we have a question from acom and she says thank you so much stacy for taking the time to be with us today i'm really inspired by your story and career especially as a minority in race and gender in silicon valley what advice would you give someone with a similar background looking to grow into a thought leader like yourself? I, you know, you have to start somewhere. I don't think I would have imagined like my, I don't know, let's call it my 14 year old self is putting me back at 14 or maybe 10. I have a 10 year old. Let's see my 10 year old self. I didn't even know what I wanted to do. Actually I did. I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian and my dog died and I decided I couldn't handle like dying animals. So I couldn't be a veterinarian. <laughs> but um, my 14 year old self was like, Hey, I, this is, this is, if you find a good job, maybe someday get married, maybe have some kids, like you've done it. That's great. And I've done so much more than that. I could never have imagined the life that I have right now, ever. And so if you're starting somewhere, whatever you can do, you, you can do way more than that. And just know, and in 10 years, like look back and be like, yeah, she was right. Like I'm doing more than I have ever imagined. And so thinking about being able to accomplish 
what today might be the unimaginable might push you to take that step or take that risk or take that job or take that opportunity to pursue your goals and your dreams. Thank you, Stacey. Paul has a question for you. Um, and I want to congratulate Paul because he got a job offer today. We're very proud of him. Um, from your perspective and wealth of experiences, what are some technologies or products that catch your eye, excite you right now that will possibly have major impact on our future? Yeah, I am. I'm really biased. I just talked about Noom, um, but I, <laughs> I love the company. And I, I do think that they are doing an amazing job of really trying to help people create better, healthier lifestyles. Um, I love, there's a really cool app called Liberate that is focused on mental health for the Black community. And I think that's a very, very, very worthwhile effort because in our community, mental health is very taboo. And so to really take that on is huge. There's a woman named Toyin who's running a company called City Block Health, and she's basically providing better health care for people who are on Medicaid. Like, these are the people who are really changing the game. And yes, I saw somebody in the chat put StockX is like the best place to buy exclusive stuff, and it's true. And so... You know, I think that, you know, creating your own style, I happen to have a child who has her own style. And yesterday, I went, I today was first day of school, so I took her shopping, and she picked out these shoes, and I would never, ever, ever wear them, because I was just like, who wears stuff like this? And, it's, and, the, and the lady at the store was like, oh my God, she has so much style. So style is very individual. And so the more that we can express ourselves, the more confident we feel in our own skin with our own style. I think anybody who's building a company like that is going to be uh, successful. <laughs> Love it. Thank you, Stacy. Jose has a question. He says, I'm a new hire at Guideline and the founders met at TaskRabbit. Um, and he says, what qualities do you see in military families or veterans that set them apart? He says, the reason I ask is because Kevin Busk has publicly stated that growing up in a military family led him to entrepreneurship and forced him to become more adaptable. Yeah, I, um, I love Kevin. That's awesome. I love Guideline. I'm actually talking to Leah <laughs> tomorrow. So um, they're no longer married, but they still are friends. And so I'm really proud of what he's building. Um, my, one of my managers was in the military. And so I've worked kind of around and with people who are veterans. And what I see um, in addition to the ability to adapt, because you move around a lot. And so you're thrown into an environment that is new, unfamiliar, not your choice. And then you got to sink or swim and figure it out. Um, the other is just pride. I mean, really taking pride in what it is that you do. Anybody who is willing to raise their hand and step up and serve our country in a selfless way has to have a lot of courage and bravery. Um, and there's pride in that. There's pride in knowing that I'm doing something for someone else. And so 
everybody that I've ever worked with who has veterans in their family, in and around their family, bring a sense of self-worth to the table that you can't manufacture. Like, it's just in there. It's like, we, we've done something, we can do something, and we're just going to get out there. The last thing I'll say is, like, they literally know what it means to be in the trenches. And so, <laughs> and that, there's some value in that, because I, we've had some downtimes at TaskRabbit and at Google, and it's like, it's those people are like, all right, we're in the trenches. Plan A, here's what, here's what we're going to do. Plan B, here's what we're going to do. Plan C, if that doesn't work, here's plan D. And they're like, got it. And you need people like that. You need people on the team who's like, if there is a crisis, they know exactly what to do. They're going to step in and they're going to figure this thing out. And like, that is so valuable in building a company. Thank you, Stacey. I love that. Um, a couple of questions for you. Um, you, so you, you went to Wharton, you started your career in accounting, you were in financial services, you were at Goldman. When you joined Google, you originally joined in a financial planning and analysis role. So you have a very analytical background. Um, but one thing that you've said that I love was sometimes we ignore what's in our heart and lead with our head. And we really should listen to our gut. <laughs> Will you talk to us a little bit more about that perspective? Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a great way to think about how you make decisions. Um, we all make decisions constantly. Like our brains are constantly deciding. So you're deciding when you're going to get up, how, 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 much you're gonna, how many times you're going to hit the snooze button, like, you know, what you can make for breakfast, like all these little decisions you're making. And then there are big ones. And so the head, the heart, and the gut, like they come from somewhere. And every once in a while, I advise people to take a step back and say, like, am I making this decision with my gut? I'm hungry and I really want pizza. But then my head is like, eh, I'm trying to lose 10 pounds. So maybe not the pizza. <laughs> so your gut is either going to get that pizza or your head is going to be like, you're and you're borderline lactose intolerant, so that cheese, so maybe you should like skip the pizza and get something else, right? And so every decision that we make is with one of those things in the lead. It's not that the others aren't part of it, but one of them kind of leads and jumps out there. And I found in my career that my gut is the thing that pushes me into like a big opportunity or a new opportunity. I had no idea the partnership with TaskRabbit was going to work. And so all I could do was like, in my head, did all the math, all the analysis, how do we minimize the risk and everything. And my heart was like, oh God, if this works out, you know, this would be amazing for the company. And like, I love these people that I'm meeting. But in, in the end, it was my gut that was like, we have to take a chance. And I felt the pit in my stomach was like, and if this doesn't work out, the board's probably going to fire me. But if it does work out, then that's going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. This dovetails with my next question. And um, I heard you say it, and it was actually advice that someone was giving to you, a mentor was giving to you. And they said, I believe in you, you should believe in you. And, um, and I just wanted to know, I mean, with Breakline, a lot of what we talk about is imposter syndrome. 
and kind of the universal human affliction of just questioning yourself, questioning your ability, questioning whether you belong. And right. if you've had those moments of self-reflection, how do you, how do you come out with confidence? How do you get to that place where you believe in yourself? It is really hard to, to accept that this is where you're supposed to be. Um, how did this happen? Why am I here? I had the pleasure of interviewing um, Michelle Obama three years ago in 2018 on stage in front of 20,000 people. And I was like, how did I get picked to do this? Like, what am I going to say? How am I going to do this? And I did all this work to prepare. I like studied. I had a hard time sleeping that night. Like I practiced my speech like over and over again, my intro and everything. And so my, I had this one coach I was working with on presentations and she always said to me, Stacy, remember when you're, when you're moderating, especially when you're presenting, but especially when you're moderating, just remember like it's about the audience and to be present and turn it up. So about the audience means like, you know, it's not about you and what you want to get out of it, it's about them. To be present is like to fully be there and to turn it up is to like turn up your volume. And so those are my three things that I do when I do talk and presentations, but I get out there and I'm like panicked because I have my 10 questions and I'm like, I'm starstruck, which I've never been starstruck. I'm starstruck and I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my God, like I got to think about the next question. I got to think about the next question. Because what if I forget the next question and I have the sheet, I have the cards, like it was, I was so, and then I remembered being present. And I remembered at that moment, if I just relax into this moment, like, can I just let myself do that for a second? We can probably have a good conversation. And I did. And the, the next thing I know it was over and everybody was cheering and it was wonderful. But I learned from that is like, just be present. Like you're in this moment for a reason, wherever that moment is. And so to think of yourself as an imposter, like you're just outside of yourself and to put yourself in that moment and to really be present, feels scary, feels vulnerable, but like it feels good in the end. So that was a really fun interview. It was like one of my life moments that I will never forget. The chat was going off as you were describing interviewing <laughs> Obama. How amazing. Um, Rachel has a question for you and she says, and, and this is, you know, you're, you, you've kind of been at the mountaintop as, as Paul Chun said. And so it's hard to imagine someone like you still having goals that you're striving for. And Rachel saying, Stacy, what is something that you're still try, striving to achieve or a goal you still have? Yeah, I, um, well, I, I used to rank myself as having written the world's tallest roller coaster. And now there are taller ones than when I was a kid. So I need to like go find them and <laughs> do that. Um, I've been to all the continents and so, except for Antarctica, so that is on my list. Um, and then it's just being a good mom. Like, I never know if I'm getting it right. And I've started like asking my kids, I'm like, Siri, am I, am I getting it right? Like, I never know. And she'll say, yeah, mommy, you're doing a pretty good job, right? She'll just, you know, I need that feedback from her. Those are some of just life goals that I have. I think professionally, I don't know what else, you know, there is out there for me. And what I do know is I love building great companies 
in helping people be their best selves. And so I don't think I can ever be done with that, even though I've helped a lot of people and built some great companies. I don't think I can ever be done with that. Um, Stacy, one of the things that I've been thinking about, you, you've talked about how I think your high school was 98% African-American and you've talked about the, um, the, the ties and connections to your community at home in Detroit and what that meant for you and the foundation and the strength that it gave you. You then later in your life, you were at Google and, you know, um, working closely with people like Sheryl Sandberg you um, you met Leah Busk because you were in the same physical office. And um, it reminds me of the importance of navigating spaces and places um, so that we're interacting with people who we can have a positive impact on and who can have a positive impact on us, whatever that yeah. means. Have you have you been thoughtful about that? Like the, the spaces and places that you want to be a part of in the physical world, not just, you know, this, this remote world that we're all living in right now due to COVID. Yeah. I, I, um, I, my husband and I struggle with this because we live in Palo Alto and it's not very ethnically diverse. Um, there are, there's some socioeconomic diversity that, kind of can find a little bit in, in our church. Um, and there are, you know, other races here. There's just not a lot of black people to be quite frank. And, and that is something that I feel growing up, I grew up around black people. You said 98%, like the high school, there was a sense of like pride that came with seeing other people that looked like me everywhere. And um, when I think about the spaces and the places, like, I want that for my kids. Like, I want that for people who look like me so that we don't have to walk into the room and be the only one and wonder if they had, like, questions about why our hair looks like this and, you know, all sorts of things that go through people's heads. And I just really want to try to create, like, more diverse spaces. So I try to move in spaces where the opportunities to change the space to make it more diverse, to make it more equal is there. But I also know that I am a, the beach is my happy place. So sometimes I gotta do some self care. And like, I love, I love the beach. I love the ocean and I will go to a place physically so that I can like escape all the stuff and watch a beautiful sunset. <laughs> Stacey, thank you so much for joining us. You're a mom, you have two kids, you have an incredibly busy career. And, um, and we know that you're really, really careful with how you spend and invest your time. We're so grateful that you chose to be with us today for the last hour. Thank you so much for making that choice and hope you have a wonderful evening. Thank you, thank you. I was delighted to be here and thank you to all of the veterans for your service. I am grateful that you have stepped up with the bravery and the courage that you have. And I wish everybody just all the best. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired, a little bit moved, and feeling as if you learned something. I tell you what, if you enjoy what you heard today, we only need you to do one of three things. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe, and if it really touched your spirit, go on review and rate this episode. It would mean a lot to us. It helps us get the word out there. 
Um, it helps us continue to share this great content. Uh, and most importantly, we just love to hear what you what you'd have to say about the content that we're putting out there. So um, please join us again here in the Breakline Arena. Once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn, and I am signing out from the Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia Bodwin, we will see you guys next week. <laughs>